Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the African-American community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I'm going to use my show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a perfect platform for the many different kinds of black people to utilize and to rally around. And so I'd uh, like to say good afternoon again to the people listening. Been on a, on a, a hiatus. Now I'm excited to be back. Also, there are some things that have cropped up that uh, in the general public that I definitely want to go over today. And uh, I think uh, today's show, I really want to focus on Black Zombie Nation and that national, the, the results and the consequences of not having a centralized African-based culture and an inability to be proactive, to build a power base, to build an economic, political power base that can sustain, protect, educate, and take care of the black uh, community, so-called black community, and black race. And so there's some things that have gone on in the general public that, to me, illustrate that. And so now, again, I have to get into why Kwanzaa and what I, how I think Kwanzaa can be a great product or platform uh, to help the African-American community. Uh, Kwanzaa would be made into a system that would be utilized uh, by the African peoples. And why is Kwanzaa a great system to do that? It's not specific to a particular tribe of African. So it is inclusive to all types of African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, uh, ethnicity, nationality, and geography. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all African peoples can rally around, which would lead to better camaraderie, familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, then more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, orchestrate as one effective force. And of course, the, all, the, the, the results of all these processes together are what is called unity. People think unity is, that, oh, we're here together and that's, we're unified. That's not what unity, unity is a very active word. It is, we can work as one. We can organize as one. We can defend as one. We can get information as one. We can get that information out to all of the people that's part of our network. That's what unity is. Unity is when a football team plays, they have a, they have a call, they have a playbook that everyone's using on offense. They have a playbook that everyone's using on defense. They have a calling system that can be utilized in a stadium of 100,000 people. So it's hard to communicate, uh, particularly if you're the away team, if you're playing at the other team's stadium and everyone's yelling. So they have to have ways to communicate to one another. It's usually hand signals. Then they started putting um, microphones in the, in, in the uh, earpieces in the uh, head of the quarterbacks. So the, the players directly call to the quarterback's headset right on the field. Uh, the defense has different signals. 
They, they can adjust it. So all that gets into unity is not just a word. It's not just we all here. You know, you can't get 30 people, put them all in purple shirts, and say that's unity. How do you communicate with each other? How do you communicate with each other without other people knowing your communication? How do you get information to each other? You know, the, the, the purple shirts may go up the street, and there may be the bridge or, or road may be washed out. Do you have a communication system to let them know that? All that enters in when you're using that word unity. Uh, this is an ingredient that has been lacking in the black population and has been a, at the root of many of its problems and struggle or been a major um, impediment to its ability to deal with struggles, to deal with its enemies as one force. And I'm going to use my show to make a case for the need of a centralized culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life uh, as a pro athlete and current events and books I've read as illustrations of that need of a central culture in the black population. And so uh, another thing, I want to get into black zombie nation. I've been thinking about that for a couple of days now. Um, and, um, I, I want to talk about some things in the, in the general public that's going on in the community this week. A, a major issue was the Will Smith, um, Chris Rock slapping. So that's a perfect example to me of black zombie nation. Um, uh, that's a perfect example of a people not being able to, one thing that culture does, it gives the ability to give you a rule book. This is how we treat each other. This is how we resolve issues. And so that's an issue. Uh, another issue, I think, was um, uh, the uh, someone made mention about the great quarterback Russell Wilson and his wife, Sierra. Uh, uh, something, uh, something was made uh, mentioned by another pro athlete um, saying she wouldn't be with him if he didn't have the money he, did, he had. And so I, those are... Those are two things that come off my head, um, off my off my mind, out of my head when I'm thinking about Black Zombie Nation that has cropped up this week, these last two weeks, and I uh, definitely want to talk about that today. Uh, before we get into Kwanzaa and using it as a centralized culture and the benefits of doing that, we obviously have to ask the question that I always ask in this program. What is culture? Why is it important? Uh, culture is a playbook for a ethnic group, race, but it's a playbook for a corporation. It's a playbook for a nation. It's a playbook for any organization. It's a playbook for a country. It's a playbook for a college. It's a playbook for a union. Any type of organization you have, have they have a need for an established culture. And so that culture is usually brought forth by an ideology. And so one way, uh, a, a good example that I can cite as far as being a football player, I'm a, uh, I was uh, probably not that now. <laughs> I was 6'6", 300 pounds when I played. I'm not that now. I've been working out, you know, slimming down. Well, I was doing a lot of weightlifting and weight training. But uh, I was a big guy. I was, my upper body was very strong. 
and uh, but my lower body was not as strong. And so that took away my ability to dominate my opponent at the point of attack. So once the ball is snapped, we come off the ball, I hit them, and they keep me from hitting them as an offensive lineman. I hit the defensive lineman. The defensive lineman reacts to it, gets off my block to make the tackle. Since I, my strong suit was not my legs, I had to use a lot of technique in my approach to football, making me a – that's what is considered being a finesse player. But factually, that was not my ideology. My ideology in regards to football is physical football. I had to be finesse-oriented and technique-oriented because I was lacking in certain areas uh, that was, would be utilized in being physical, dominating your opponent, the guy hitting him harder than he hit you, or hitting him and being stronger than he is and knocking him off the ball line of scrimmage and doing that for 100 plays. I had the technique. I had to be lower, position myself between him and the ball carrier, certain angles. Um, that helped me to have a long career, but that was not really my ideology. That was my fallback. My ideology is physical football. We hit you harder than you hit us. And we hit you harder, longer, to the point where eventually we wear you down and you give up. That's real football to me. Now, where did I learn that? My dad was a great football player, and he taught me about the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi. And so we ran, the, he kept always talking about the offense that the Green Bay Packers of the 60s uh, ran, and it was the power eye. And that's the I formation with the extra back with the uh, other ball carrier. So it's uh, whereas the normal I formation is the fullback and the tailback, the power I are two fullbacks and a tailback, and their mission is to be physical, come off the ball, and dominate their opponent. And so now the Green Bay Packers became one of the most dominant championship organizations in all of sports with their – and the thing that sticks out about the Green Bay Packers it's not only did they win championships, most of their players became great businessmen and successful people after they played, and they all attributed to Vince Lombardi and what he taught them. So when you talk about the Green Bay Packers, then you got to look at the Green Bay Packers, who they were before Vince Lombardi got there, and they were typically people at the bottom of the NFL. They were not respected as a football town. They are now, now, they're now referred to as title town. Green Bay is like one of the places they call title town. Well, they weren't that before Green before Vince Lombardi got there. So they were sorry when he was there. Well, before he got there, they became one of the great sports franchises in, in sports history in America. After he left, they basically went back to where they were before that. So that's where, you know, you can't sneeze at the greatness of that Green Bay Packer uh, franchise and the Green Bay Packer way. That ideology creeped down to me. I played high school football. Guess what offense we ran in my high school? At my high school, we ran the power I offense. Then another offense geared towards physicality and dominating the people and wearing them down. Okay, so that's high school. So my football ideology is coming down the pipe for my dad, and now I'm at, it's at my high school. Then I go play football at the University of Maryland. 
Another place, a tough, hard-nosed football approach to football. Then, of course, I leave college, and I'm drafted by the New York Giants, who just won the Super Bowl. And, of course, that, that, I went to the New York Giants in the 1990s, early 90s, in 1991. They just won the Super Bowl. That was a time in football where the most dominant teams in the mid-'80s to 90s was the NFC East, the New York Giants, Philadelphia Eagles, Washington Redskins. Dallas came together at the end and outdid everyone. But that was a very dominant physical conference that physicality is why they won. And also that approach dominated Super Bowls. Most of the Super Bowl teams were of that mentality. Even when it switched in the 2000s with the AFC, had most of the physical teams and dominant the, 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 the Steelers, who were always physical for ages. But then you got New England, you had the Jets, you had Baltimore, you had all these physical teams, almost like the NFC switched from the 90s uh, to the 2000s, that physicality. So my point be, to, to all of this is simple. My ideology, even though I was a finesse player, my ideology is physical football. That ideology, even if I wasn't good at it, affected my belief system and, my, and, the, and how I taught people to play football. So my teams, when I coached, I didn't coach them to be like me. I coached them to be like the Green Bay Packers. I coached them to be like the New York Giants. I coached them to be like the New England Patriots. Because that's what I see as real football. It's the most effective football. It's won the most championships. Uh, literally, those physical teams usually don't have to have a Hall of Fame quarterback. Uh, and so they're just, there are other good things about it. So our ideology is a big part of how, what we do and how we are successful and also what we do together. So this is why culture. I'm liking this to culture, why culture is such a pivotal part for an ethnic group. It gives the ethnic groups its value system. It tells the ethnic group what's important and what's not important, just like in football. Moving my feet and getting, and getting between the, run, the ball carrier and the, uh, and, the, and, the, and the defender is fine, but my value system if I really was doing a good job and playing football the way I want it, I will, I'm supposed to put that guy on his back. That's what I want to do. Now, if getting between the ball carrier and, and the uh, defender can get us a championship, I could care less. You know, let's do that. If that scores a touchdown, if that gets us a first down, that then I'll have no problems doing that. But my, I, my aim and belief system is running him over and putting him on his back. And so culture does that. And it's a playbook, it's a very important playbook for any ethnic group in this, on this planet. And there are consequences for not having that. So a culture, when we ask the question, what's, it, what's culture, why is it important, this is why. It is a playbook for an ethnic group, nation, country, or sports team. Uh, culture is the coming together of shared values and beliefs, customs, Education, entrepreneurship, and acquiring, it ha it, it, it's, it's also about the symbols of status. Culture gives you that, what's good and what's not. You know, you see a lot of black men driving around with BMWs 
and Mercedes and and, and they it's, they like the small ones because that's what they can afford. And it's very important you know that they're in a BMW. That's a value system. See that? Uh, how important is voting to these men? How important is being a part of the political system to these men? How important is giving back to these men? How important is getting into our history so we can understand this game that we're in called life? You know, their value system. So your culture gives you that. Your culture must be learned. It cannot be, you're not born with culture. And so it has to be taught. That's why, that's why it's so pivotal because if you, when you talk about the black race in America, you're talking about a people cut off from their traditional cultures. So it has to be learned and taught. And what is culture? It's a playbook for success. It's a playbook for survival for anybody. So when you talk about taking the African out of Africa, enslaving him, cutting him off from his language, cutting him off from his traditional values, you're taking, you're taking a playbook. You're taking Michael Jordan and just letting him play basketball without the triangle offense that Phil Jackson gave him. You're taking the uh, Green Bay Packers and taking the, the power eye offense away from them. You know, it's taking Tom Brady out of the defense-oriented offense that helped him. When Tom Brady was, was when I tell you what, when the New England Patriots were 3-3 three and three in Super Bowls, they had a smash-mouth physical approach to sports and football. They won with defense, running the ball, stopping the run, forcing other people to be in third and long the whole game. That's essentially uh, forcing someone to continually run outside in a race, in a foot race, with you being in the inside, and that person has to still beat you in that long distance or 400-meter or you know half-a-mile race. They have to run longer to beat you. They have to go a longer ways when you do that. So when I keep you in third and long in football, and, I, and I'm always in third and five and under, I'm forcing the team to have to work harder. They have to, they have to um, take bigger risks. See, when I keep you in third and long, I have better chances for interceptions and completions and sacks. When I'm third and five and under, I don't need Dan Marino to make third, you know, third down, to, to convert on third down in football. So the New England Patriots built a championship ideology around that for 20 years almost. So that's, that's what culture does for you. That's what a, a culture can do. It's a playbook. So when you cut any race off from that, you're cutting them off from their playbook. You're cutting them off from their survival. You're simply um, cutting them off for it, from its ability to protect, educate, and love itself. So, um, again, it is a connection point for race culture is um, to its ancestral rituals, success procedures, child-rearing, education, stewardship, and survival. Culture uses symbols, artifacts, and flags, and statues, um, and, and they're... Um, and they usually represent their metaphors that represent their ancestors. So we worship and give respect to those, culture does this, that those that came before you and helped you and helped others. It also teaches you by, by um, you know, 
when when you play football, if you know football, <clears throat> you should know who Anthony Munoz is. If you play offensive line, if you play football, you should know who Deion Sanders is. You should know who Mean Joe Green is. And now Mean Joe Green played in the seventies, but he was the best defense alignment in football, and he won four Super Bowl rings. If you really love football, and you really you you, how can you love something? When you and you don't know the people that made it great, so in understanding culture does this. In understanding football, you understand the people that made the game great. You now understand what you need to be for you to be great. Who you need to pattern yourself after to be great, or do better than those guys to be better. You know, to be greater. But culture does that. It's a a aspiration point. For everyone in the race, culture does that. Culture is a center point of groups. It's rituals of birth and death. We said that before. Culture is an economic strategic planning for a race or ethnic group. The acquisitions of businesses. Um, startup help for the, in the process. Uh, to buy real estate. It helps in that. Educating into obtain. Oh, culture is, it gives you, again, a value system that's helping you educate uh, and, and point you towards high-paying jobs. You know, their cultural, their whole na- poor neighborhoods in New York that were populated by Irish, Italian, and Jewish people. The Irish people, regard- they were all poor. The Irish people, regardless of, the, you know, the, I guess, I don't know what to tell They weren't doing test scores, but the bottom line is the Irish people that came out of those same neighborhoods usually were police and firemen. The Italians were usually tradesmen. And the Jewish people were doctors, lawyers, and dentists. And so out of the same poor neighborhood, that's a value system that only a culture can do for you. It tells you what's important. Getting good grades in school is important. That leads to high-paying jobs. Culture does that. Uh, the culture is a transportation of the history of a race and its identities. We are the chosen people. That's, uh, some groups say, think that of themselves. Uh, culture tells you that. Uh, culture is an economic, political, social, uh, psychological, spiritual, geographical rallying point for ethnic groups. And the disconnection, as we talked about earlier, of all these elements of civilization, so when you disconnect any group from all of those elements, it is left virtually defenseless. And so when you have um, Black Zombie Nation, which I want to get into a lot today, you're talking a race that can't, can barely educate itself, you're talking about a race that can barely protect itself, you're talking about a race that can't take power. Gentrification, that's all gentrification is. Gentrification is rich, uh, higher socioeconomic groups picking an area that's occupied by indigenous. It's almost like it's almost like the Indians, actually. It's almost like Native Americans. Gentrification, wow, I just thought about this, is very similar to the natives in North America, Africa, uh, and other, you know, almost the native groups are, uh, and um, Thomas Sewell talks about this in his writing. He's a, um, 
uh, an educator, and he's written some books, but he, he's made some great points. Basically, um, primitive people are not inferior. They are just, they're, they're people that I consider a tree for the forest people. And so one analogy that people always use is not being able to see the forest for the trees, meaning you're so focused on the trees, you're so focused on the forest, you don't see what's right in front of you as far as the trees. I, I think that's um, the case with the military. And um, if you're on point, you everyone's kind of looking downfield and it could be someone in camouflage right underneath you. So your biggest threat could be right in front of you. It could be a landmine, could be, you know, someone hiding. But if you're looking down in the forest, you, you're not really putting yourself, giving yourself a chance to uh, take care of yourself. I believe when you look at indigenous populations all over this globe, I think it's the tree for the forest, meaning they have systems that help them for thousands upon thousands of years, and they saw the trees, but they didn't see the forest as far as advancing. And so in, in what Thomas Sewell says in his writing, basically, the people who are dominant today, who are considered superior, which of course, that's going to be white people in Western civilization, were not always that. At one point, they were the primitives. And these people who you see as primitives were actually, it may be a thousand years ago, maybe 5,000 years ago, a lot of the people, their societies and civilizations were advanced. They just did not progress because their societies and civilizations gave them everything they wanted. And one thing that a big factor in that was its interaction with other populations. And so he's saying even in, in um, Highlands, in Scotland, Highlands areas, even in the British Isles, the, the indigenous populations that don't have a lot of interaction with outside cultures tend to stagnate and get left behind. A lot of the, uh, which was basically gentrification, imperialism, is basically advanced populations going into unadvanced populations, stagnated populations, having more technology and tools and being able to take over and dominate those areas because those populations did not progress. That's, this is what Thomas Sewell was saying in his writings, which I actually agree with. I don't necessarily agree with Tom, everything Thomas Sewell says, but he makes a lot of good points in, in this because his writings, he does a lot of studies of ethnic groups, which is pretty cool. But I see gentrification as that same thing. You have a traditional uh, population of under economic, under economy, undervalued economic peoples. And so when you look at the black population, you have an inability to control its areas that even the areas that it resides in, be it police, politically, even in ownership, they can't bring businesses there compared to other groups. So the high end kids that get educated go where they leave them. Okay. They can't really create economy and they can't create their own civilization there anyway. So that's left. What's left are poor people, elderly people, 
So it is underfinanced. It's under-economized, making them pray to any group that has that funding, that has the socioeconomic power behind them to come in and make that area theirs. Okay, apparently how gentrification works, as more outside people move into the area, the tax brackets go up because they're building more expensive homes. And so the poor people, traditional people, now have to pay more in taxes, so they're almost forced to leave. And then, of course, that leaves the poor people who have no, have very little power at all, and uh, we're very reactive instead of proactive, and that essentially that's what gentrification is. So um, I never thought about that now, the, that the um, comparison to gentrification and old imperialism and colonization um, that's going on for hundreds of years. But it's, they're very similar, and I'm just realizing that. Culture is a template, uh, but I, I can tell you this. One thing is for certain, a, a race of people that's not connected, that doesn't have a playbook, a ra- any ethnic group that doesn't have a communication system, that doesn't have a centralized way of working together is virtually defenseless, and gentrification and colonization are perfect examples of that. Culture is a template for the race. Without it, it can't exist as a cooperative entity. So these are things that, you know, this is why a centralized culture is so pivotal to the existence of a race. And again, there are certain things that only culture can do that no one else can do for you. No other race, no other, you know, people say, hey, these people aren't treated nice, so let's help them out. That's good, but there are certain things that only culture can do. It's a glue that brings you together. Only culture can love a specific people. God loves all his children. The government protects its people, but yet and still, there's inequality. God loves all children. Government's job is to protect all of its people, but yet and still, there's inequality in, any, in most civilizations, in most societies. Only culture. There are certain things that only culture can do. Only culture can teach how to love each other. Only culture can teach why education is important for you. Only culture can teach you why power is important for you. Only culture will help you teach how to honor and value old people. Only culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can uh, organize you around economics. Only culture can properly dispute um, life, life-saving societal development knowledge. Only culture can create symmetry between the classes with the race, uh, with, within a race. Streets, that, uh, streets have very little, the streets have very little human capital. Uh, I don't know, it, 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 doesn't have, it doesn't have comparable street capital. It actually does have street capital but it has capital that's geared towards the streets uh, and survival. The streets um, don't have the the human capital that builds uh, societies and civilizations. So that's uh, that's something I wrote, you know, it has very little human capital. Eh, I don't know. It can, oh, only culture can create symmetry between genders with with, uh, males for each, with roles for each, 
uh, to play and, and to and to um, and to repeat for future generations. So there are things that only culture can do. And so and when we talk when we get into Black Zombie Nation, we're going to look at the fundamental um, unraveling or the fundamental discontinuity that hurts the black community and the things that it needs to do, the things that it tries to do, and the things that it's currently are, are, are doing. So um, I definitely want to go into the Black Zombie Nation. And uh, now, why? what do I mean by Black Zombie Nation? That's an absolute legitimate question to uh, talk about. And so let's talk about uh, Black civilization, and we're getting into what things have hurt the black um, race historically and how that is impacted where we are today. And of course, uh, the great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, the West African population of blacks who occupied that area of West Africa were in fact refugees from East Africa where they built a, uh, our, a singular society and civilizations with an unknown centralized la- language to this day. So whatever language, it's known that there was a central, centralized language, it is not known what that language is to this day. Uh, but what is known, there, it actually existed. Because of natural disaster, immigration of Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began uh, migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As this happened, they began splitting up and going into different parts of West Africa, forming their own tribes uh, with their own tribal languages and tribal cultures, and also their own tribal religions. When you hear, um, and we have a little example of it when you talk about voodoo, and that, that is something that came with the African slaves that came to Western, you know, the Western Hemisphere during the slave trade. But voodoo, the, the, all the tribes in Africa had their own systems. They had their own spirituality. When you hear witch doctor and, and stuff like that, they, those, there was no centralized religion. So essentially... All tribes had their own witch doctors and spirituality people. So essentially, a tribe had their own specific religion. And so with their own language, with several different cultures, with their own spirituality, these are legitimately different peoples, even though they're all black. Okay, so having no central state, European incursion was unchecked. And instead of unifying to deal with the common threat posed to the region uh, during the advancement of the slave, uh, slave, slave, you know, at the beginning of the slave trade, and which is this is the point in history where Europe, and again, you have to you have to do a good job of understanding what was going on and why Europe, which had just come through the Dark Ages. Uh, was part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire imploded, uh, breaking off at first into two empires, 
in Constantinople and then in Rome, and then just basically it got too big, inefficient, and too many wars, and, and the barbarians kept, you know, they it, it, basically they had a large amount of inequality between rich and poor, and so Rome fell apart. That's what threw Europe into the Dark Ages. So Europe at this time were, you know, kind of a trailer park type of thing, where it's just a lot of poor people with the technology power being elsewhere, Middle East, China, not Europe. Uh, the, the Renaissance age was a point in time where tech, they started to catch back up. Now, they still were not powerful. The thing that helped Europe become a powerful r region, Western civilization, was its commerce and colonization and its slave trade. So when the European came to Africa, he was not a dominant person on the world scene like that. It was literally the goods and services and manpower that he took from Africa and colonized that started to allow him to become colonial empires. The Dutch, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and then the British. The French. All of them, and, and the irony is, this happened in the 1600s. Um, and so, we, and again, we have, uh, and we're talking about the, the transportation of the African population to, from Eastern Africa to Western Africa. And, they, and what they did, they decentralized. They became many different peoples. Uh, this, this, uh, the common threat that posed to the region when the slave trade started was not stopped and was not defended against because there were so many different ethnic groups of black people. And matter of fact, not only did they not uh, defend it, it started in factricidal wars in which the blacks basically aided the whites in the conquest of Africa. So war chiefs, African chiefs, would make war on their neighbors. See, with one country having up to 100 tribes, that's essentially one country having 100 different ethnic groups. So it was easy for the European trade slave traders to get the African trees, chiefs to make war literally on their neighbors and cousins, win the war, and trade the slaves to the Western sla uh, slavers, to the, you know, the European slavers. In many cases, they traded them for uh, beads. Uh, in the book, uh, the, the book Black Slave, Black Wealth, uh, White Wealth, Black Labor. I think that was by Claude Anderson. Anyway, it talked about the the Africans gave their African people captured um, war booty to the Europeans with little in return. You know, they gave them beads. They gave them, uh, I think, liquor. Made gave them weapons. But see, if the, if the Europeans gave the African weapons, it, it didn't help the Africans because they were decentralized anyway. So it's not like they took the weapons and, and 100 people became one people, which would make them very formidable for European incursion. It didn't matter anyway. You're just a tribe with some, some weapons, some type of weapons or, or, or shotguns or whatever the weapons were of the day. 
So they're taking the labor force that made them rich and powerful from Africa. The Africans literally helped them to do this. And so this is what has transpired in that, in that, you know, in that realm that helped, that helped Europeans and helped destroy African civilization. And so, uh, that's that's a reality that exists, and a matter of fact, it, the actually the European where the Europeans diseases wiped out the indigenous Indian populations because they were not the Indian populations were not geared towards the um, natural diseases that the white men were bringing with them, and it killed it. Literally, it, when the conquistadors landed in Western, in the Western Hemisphere, in South America, North America, Central America, as they traveled, the the native populations were literally already dying when they got there. So they they had to, they didn't have to fight too many people. Their diseases that they brought with them literally were killing the native populations of of you know indigenous populations in North and South and Central America. In Africa, it was the opposite. A white European could only go so far into the continent of Africa where he would have had to fought two different diseases. Malaria and yellow fever were prevalent at that time. So there's no way, it's not funny, but it's just ironic. There's no way that the European slave traders could have taken millions upon millions of Africans out of Africa without African assistance and participation, and the the fundamental level of that uh, is the fact that they had no centralized culture that said we're all one people. As a matter of fact, Thomas Sewell, inciting the struggles, and and I agree with uh, Dr. Sewell with this. He really compared people talk about wealth gaps in his books, in his writings. He's saying the wealth gaps and the power gaps are not just inferiority and people being lazy. And he basically cites the United States. If the United, if you, if you could come out and say, I want to create a, a body of land that is perfect for commerce, perfect for an indigenous population with its rivers and streams and mountains and climate, if someone could create a place for that, they literally would create the United States. When you look at Africa, Africa, it's a big piece of area, huge piece of area. But how many natural harbors does Africa have? Then you have to add, okay, it has a bunch of, Africa has twice as many rivers as the United States. Okay, how many of those rivers are navigable? That's a critical point of commerce and power and wealth creation. The United States has rivers that super tankers can navigate. Most African rivers are not navigable. See, some rivers are, are 100 feet deep for six months of the year, but for the rest of the year are two feet deep. Do, are they what? They have a waterfall. So you may have a boat, a ship, or boat that you want to transport goods and services, but there's a waterfall. So 
he said, and then, of course, you have the, the temperature. Is it good for farming? What is it good? What is it not good for? America, specifically, particularly America, is has that natural advantage. Africa has that disadvantage. You look at the West Coast, East Coast, it's a harbor-laden area. Apparently, is you know the the coastline of Africa is massively longer than the United States. It still has fewer natural harbors, like twice or three times as much as a. So he's saying what you see as inequality is the cha- the natural challenges that the indigenous groups and populations have for this area. Another uh, point that Dr. Sewell makes, which leads to me is, oh, and Africa has the world's greatest number of languages, which means it has the greatest number of diversity of ethnic groups. You can see them all as black people uh, all you want, but that's not how they see each other, and literally that's not how they work with each other. Matter of fact, they don't work with each other historically. They make war on each other before they make war on anybody else traditionally and making them very extremely vulnerable uh, for any type of incursion. And I think I talked about this. uh, A great young man I met in one of my international classes in the 90s was from Liberia. And uh, I asked this gentleman, you know, you're from Liberia. I think I apologized to him because I think the African-Americans, again, black zombie nation, basically Liberia was settled by African-Americans from America. So they were repatriated, uh, like go back to Africa, we're from Africa. They tried to do what white people do. They tried to create a society in which uh, uh, African-Americans dominated Liberia. Well, of course, the Liberians said, F that, overthrew them and threw them out. So that's black zombie nation. That's absolutely black zombie nation where you have Africans trying to pretend they're white and put, and put themselves in a position of power and oppressing other blacks. And so that's absolutely um, black zombie nation as far as the inability of the black race to work together. It's, it's, it, it's an inability to see the big picture and, and the consequences of that. And so, which, oh, leads where we're going now. <laughs> the consequences of the black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations and societies. Uh, and so, again, when you, when you displaced the black population of Africa, you did several things. You brought him into someone else's population that he helped build. His free labor made them, made him important to keep over there. It made it important to keep bringing him over there. So that's one thing it did. It weakened the existing black populations. It strengthened the, the European countries. Now, let's, the, the slave population started, the slave trade started in the 15 to 1600s, um, really got serious in the 1600s. Once slavery, once the plantation and the slave system became franchisable, meaning once the whites and European colonists realized that bringing the black slave to uh, northern, you know, to North America was the most efficient way to make money. 
The Indians that they had, they tried to enslave, but the Indians knew the area more than them. Uh, the, the Indians would die in captivity. The, the African slave was a, almost a perfect vessel of economy because he didn't know the area. He, didn't have, he, he was cut off from his own language. So he became, very, he became an integral part of his economic engine. So he needed to keep them. He needed a, a feeder system of more Africans. So that was a death blow for African civilizations in Africa. So it, it kept them doing this for hundreds of years. It kept them slave training for hundreds of years because they were getting the benefits of it. It's making them powerful, and it's making Africa even weaker. It's losing population. It's not unified. And so what ended up happening, I, the irony is, 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 is obvious. The European nations and colonial powers became so powerful, they literally came back in the 1800s at the Berlin, Berlin Conference and said, you know what? Since we have this power, we have this technology, we basically, these are indigenous, weak people who are not unified. They have resources that we can use. They simply took over all of Africa. So within 200 years of the Africans getting into the slave trade industry with Europeans, remember, the European was not a power broker at the time they came to Africa beginning the slave trade as far as the Portuguese, whatever, they were aspiring. They were recovering from the Middle Ages. They were recovering from the fall of Rome. What made them powerful were their colonies. The driving force of the economies of, the, of their colonies was free labor brought in from Africa. They became so powerful, and the African, West African nations and regions became so weakened that the Europeans came back to Africa and took over the whole continent, basically, splitting it up. The Berlin Conference in the late 1800s, the European powers said, this is your region of Africa. You got it. The British have this. Uh, the, um, the French have that. The Dutch have this. And um, that's how they split up Africa in the late 1800s. As a matter of fact, uh, Professor James Smalls basically said this was the root cause of World War I because the Germans didn't get a big enough piece to generate enough income from their colonies, which made her seek other places to colonize, which put them into conflict with the rest of Europe, particularly Great Britain. And so this is, these are the consequences of you know, not being a unified group and the black man not building his own civilizations. Okay. So the, the, the consequences back to my format, he has become remedial in the area of military science, power creation, understanding what other people are going to do to help themselves over you, uh, understanding what you need to do to counter other people's actions. He's remedial in that he's remedial in the area of acquisition and power creation, like I said, and not understanding, uh, and not really understanding how they work, making him vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. Now, what's what's an example of the black man being a marginal ally? 
uh, actually, uh, Judge Clarence Thomas is a perfect example of that in, in modern times. So when you go back and you look at the Senate here, it's a brilliant military science move by the Republicans. It was a brilliant, unfortunately for us, military science. You have a black man that's very conservative, uh, basically a, a white apologist and basically someone who is an agent of conservatism and in many instances out and out racism. And so he's a member of the Supreme Court. When they chose him as their candidate, he's a black man. And of course, the world looked, and of course, as will we have in the new uh, judge hearings, you know, the other side really goes hard at the nominees. And so when you look at Judge Clarence Thomas years ago, you see the Democratic Party and the liberal parties with a conundrum, a, a, an enigma. If they go hard at Clarence Thomas, they're picking on a black man. And they, um, and this is how he got in. You know, he, he was, you know, and, and it became a big issue. Him, they brought in the Anita Hill thing. And you could see the Democratic Party and the liberal part were perplexed at going at this guy the way they should have. And um, this allowed them, him to get nominated. It was a brilliant strategic move by the Republicans and the conservatives because it put the Democrats in a position where they really couldn't go at them. They, it, looked like, it literally looked like racism uh, if they did that. And it's ironic because, of course, he has definitely not been been someone who's not a friend to black people, clearly, based on his beliefs, his rulings, and everything. And the real irony is the people who were up trying to oppose him, your Ted Kennedy, your Joe Bidens, your, I think, John Kerry's. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, the people who were perplexed at going at Clarence Thomas were literally people that the black community 20 years after that were putting all their hopes and dreams on. And so now that's a failure on both sides. That's a failure of the black, like I just said, the, the, the failure of the black man to build his own civilizations and societies and to cut him off from those, those things, make him a marginal ally at best. He doesn't understand the big picture. He doesn't necessarily flow with the game plan or the chess game in front of him. And the left, and I think there really needs to be another show on the historic fractionalization of the left that has aided small, a small group of people, not even Republicans. It has allowed a small group of people traditionally to control um, capitalist um, infrastructure not just in America, really all over in Europe particularly. And, uh, and it, this is historic. But anyway, that lack of continuity has been an aid to a small, small group of property-owning people. And so that national, that, that there, there should have been better continuity from the left to say, for, you know, for those people to say, this is not a good guy for you. He's black, but he's not going to help you out. They were right, and we were wrong, and there should have been better continuity on the left 
over that issue. So that's part of the black, that's part of black zombie nation. That's a perfect example of black zombie nation. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. This ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. So this is a large group of people that uh, work together and actually don't work together well. They work together inefficiently, antagonizing each other very easily and um, making that a reality, you know, and, and hampering its ability to act as one active, re- proactive force, taking power, creating power, creating wealth, educating, um, uh, working with settling disputes. Culture does, a centralized culture does all of those things. And so not having that is what creates that zombie nation of walking people, walking dead that don't have the ability to understand the board in front of them, don't have the ability to take action. They all, it's usually reactive. Uh, once people are done, you're protesting, but you know, you, you need to take over areas in the first place, then you wouldn't have to protest. Culture is the, is the rallying point that gives you the ability to do that. And this is one of the things that, um, you know, create that reality of black domination. So what do I mean by that? And what are some other examples? The so-called black communities, extremely susceptible to gentrification because they have generations leaving because they are not a They have not established and maintained their own self-sustaining economies. This makes their political, makes them politically vulnerable to laws, law changes and redistricting. That's usually that typically what happens in uh, redistricting situations. Once the, the, the black, the black populations who don't control and, and it's ironic, we have people that own property in predominantly areas, in predominantly black areas. But since those numbers are dwindling, they're getting older, their kids are leaving, and we are naturally not unified. Those property-owning blacks tend to, we, we don't really, we're not able to take advantage of that to the extent that other people are, other ethnic groups are. So this makes them politically vulnerable. So what happens is when the outside people have control of the politics of the area, they control the redistricting of the area. That means they control the taxes of the area. They control what's going through the area. They control what's not going through the area as far as new roads and and what have you, and, and declaring this area uninhabitable, declaring that house, whatever. They can do whatever they want to make living there not, um, un, un, to make living there untenable. And that's what they do. They change the laws, change the laws, and they redistrict, making it untenable for the existing black populations to live there. Uh, with new populations coming in, raising the standard and the tax set, raising the tax limits and the, you know, the tax base, uh, now the existing populations can't uh, really sustain. They're almost forced to sell. And not only are they forced to sell, 
they tend to they tend to have to sell at lower prices. So they they bought the house and it was they bought the house for thirty thousand dollars thirty years ago. They sell the house at a hundred. That same house is literally going to be worth like four to to three to four hundred thousand within a couple of years. So this is what tends to happen to uh, blacks in this gentrification thing. Activism is, as a rule of the day, which is reactivism, uh, the so-called community usually reacts to negative, uh, to the negative um, uh, by the general public. It does take over territory. It does not take over territory or create a power base. Uh, it's politically naive. The focus on the emotional issues as if that would appeal to the people in power. Uh, focusing on how wrong we're being treated, and which you know, it, and, and I, it doesn't mean you shouldn't say anything. You know, an activist is doing something. Okay, uh, they're doing something. But ethnic groups that take power and create power bases are very proactive, and they are very methodical, and um, they are into strategic planning. This is what we're going to do to get us there. Okay, uh, a sense of comparison instead of playing the game of power in which you're about being able to reward your friends and punish your enemies. Yeah, that's where the the you know w- with the power game in the military science game, it's not about guns. It doesn't necessarily mean guns. It means being able to help your friends and punish your enemies. And if you're not collectively um, focused, and if you're naive to the situation, as Black Zombie Nation tends to be, you're not able to reward your friends and punish your enemies. That goes back to what I said earlier: the lack of a black man taking care of his own civilizations and societies makes him a marginal ally at best. So that's so when Clarence Thomas is running for 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 well, he's not running, but he's being brought up to bring to be a Supreme Court justice, you have an inability of the black population to see, oh, this is racism, and the white people are saying, no, this guy's not going to be good for you. This is, this is black zombie nation. This is the black community not understanding power, not understanding and not being able to reward its friends and punish its enemies. The black community should have been able to stand firmly behind whoever was talking against Clarence Thomas, which it did not do. It was, you know, it was kind of a, it, it, it happened exactly the way the Republicans and conservatives wanted it to happen. It was a stagnation. He said, she said, there was no real, no real, to my memory, no general movement against Clarence Thomas, no general understanding that this guy, as your Supreme Court justice, your black people are going to suffer the most uh, if this guy is put in. And so that was not, that was missed back then. And that is an idea of black zombie nation. Um, Barack Obama was really unpopular in large circles of the black, of the so-called black community, as if real black people with power were going to allow, you know, as if people were going to allow him a free hand with the government. President Obama's uh, was probably the most obstructive U.S. president in history. And so uh, the fact that you had large numbers of black of the black population disinterested in 
in him and thought he should have done more, he probably could have done more. The fact of the matter is he was the most obstructed president in U.S. history. Now, let's get into that. And, boy, I got a lot of black zombie stuff going on here, but we are actually getting to the end of the program. But anyway, first of all, Barack Obama, President Obama, won the presidency in 2008. The next cycle, I think the next cycle, he, he won with the majority, he won with the mandate. He lost his mandate almost as soon as he got it. <laughs> and why is that? Well, people didn't vote. So I think the, the, the Senate and House of Representatives, bottom line, there was a lot of the, the, the Republicans rolled up on President Obama almost as soon as he was in office. And so they, that mandate that he had, where they had a lot of Democrats coming in, a lot of, um, of the black population simply didn't show up to vote as they voted for him in 2008. Now, it's understandable he was, you know, he brought, he, he was the ushering in of a, almost a new way of thinking, and he really appeared to the hopes and dreams to large numbers of disenfranchised fringe groups in America. And so that's where he was. And so there was kind of a Messiah-like hope and expectation with him. And I don't mind that because, you know, he's the first black president and, you know, he represented the possibility. That's what Barack Obama represented. He really represented the possibility of, of, of taking democracy in this, in this country to another level and possibly its final stage. That's what he represented. That was the idea of Barack Obama. But I guess that scared enough people where, you know, you have the Tea Party after that, and, and you have the apathy, you have the political apathy in the black population. You didn't have the numbers voting uh, that voted in 2008. So what happened is he became hobbled fairly quickly which hampered his ability to do anything. You know, that's black zombie nation. That's not understanding the big part of the game. And now then we have 2016 where fear and, and um, population changes was the rule of the day with Trump. Uh, it was a great tool for them uh, to, to talk about the different ethnic groups coming to the country and the anxiety over that, and instead of coming up with policies, which really what it should have been, better economic policies that uh, help people make money overseas so they don't have to come here, um, one of the things that allowed Trump to get in was utilizing that fear and anxiety in the country. So you have the black population not turning out like it should have and could have, and then... Uh, allowing Donald Trump to come in in 2016 with a massive, which to basically black people do not understand that more black people should have voted in the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump campaign, literally than voted in the Barack Obama campaign. Some people say that the statistics don't show that black turnout was low in the Hillary Clinton campaign. I, I, I disagree with that, and not only do I disagree with that, not only did they not show up, more blacks should have voted in the Hillary Clinton 
Donald Trump campaign then voted in the Barack Obama campaign. Barack Obama was soft porn. It was hopes and dreams and, wow, look at this. But by 2016, the anxiety and fear was taking hold in the United States. And the property messiah, who is Donald Trump, the people, all the property people who, who saw 9-11 and all the in, in uncertainty that was going on, as what the hell is going on, barbarians at the gate type of thing, had their messiah in Donald Trump. And their, their, their game plan was pretty simple. We're going to do whatever we have to do to protect our property. There are too many non-white people coming in the country. Uh, we have, you know, we got terrorism. We got cyber terrorism. What the hell, there was a what the hell is going on with this country mentality at that time uh, that apparently was going to clearly scapegoat poor people. And so guess when poor people should have came out and said, oh, hell no, come up with a better solution than this, is 2016. They didn't, and there are consequences because of that. And so, and like I said earlier, uh, and I think I need another show, the traditional factionalization in the left wing has allowed a smaller and smaller group of people to control and make policies for this country. And one thing those small number of people want they don't want all poor people of ethnic, you know, of different ethnicity coming together. And so the apathy and the zombie nation of the black community has only helped and aided them. And it's, it's kept it really where it should force us to come up with new ways and better ways of working together. They really haven't had to do that. You know, if they get us not work, working and not coming together, not doing what we're supposed to, kind of like gentrification. They know they can just come and take it over. And so this is the rea- this has been the reality uh, that a lack of a centralized culture and the consequences of not having a centralized culture, these are the consequences that exist and have ex- and will continue to exist until we do something about it. Now, I have a lot of <laughs> Black Zombie Nation examples. Let's look at Chris Rock and the Will Smith incident uh, that happened last week at the Academy Awards, uh, which is a prime example of Black Zombie Nation. First of all, what people don't realize, a black man actually hosted and produced that show. So for two black men to go disrespect and embarrass themselves like that, they not only were embarrassing and disrespecting themselves, uh, they made the black man, the black man, apparently that's the first time a black man produced the Oscars and to make him look bad is of course, a perfect example of black zombie nation, black people, not understanding the big picture, uh, not understanding the important picture. Um, and you know, this is an opportunity for us to take center, center stage. This is an opportunity for black men to take center stage and show we can do more than shoot basketball. We can do more than run the 40 and 4-3. We can run shows and do them as efficiently as everything, as everyone else. Mind you now, we got black females doing amazing things right now. You know, we have our, our first Supreme Court justice is African-American. So black women are doing a lot of things. What are black men doing? They're driving BMWs and, and Dodge Challengers. You know, they're doing things that aren't important because their value system is that, is not geared toward that. So this, a black man, Producing the Oscars is a big deal that all of the black people involved 
should have been on point with, which they were not. That's black domination. So what happened at the Oscars is Chris Rock uh, looked at um, Jada Pinkett Smith, Chris, Williams, uh, Will Smith's wife, and made a comment about her being G.I. Jane. And it's actually funny. To me, it wasn't that bad. You know, her head was shaved. And G.I. Jane, um, uh, I forgot her name. Wow. Uh, see, it's, uh, it's Bruce Willis and Demi, Demi Moore. Demi Moore was in that great movie, and she had her head shaved. So Chris Rock said something referring to her as uh, G.I. Jane 2. We love you in G.I. Jane 2. And so uh, Will Smith laughs at first, then apparently um, Jada, I didn't see it, looked at him, then he gets up out of his seat, walks up on stage during the middle of the Oscars and bitch slaps Chris Rock. Uh, Chris Rock does nothing and says it's a G.I. Jane joke. You know, it's just a joke, you know. Uh, and, of course, the Oscars are known for, for <laughs> the comedians really going at the audience. And so... Uh, Will Smith goes at, um, at, you know, Will, you know, like this is c pretty common for that to happen, and so it it was a joke that, as we now know, Jada has alopecia, which I don't think Chris Rock knew. To me, it wasn't that bad a joke, you know, it wasn't that bad. But in Will Smith's um, point, apparently. All the jokes that are said at the Oscars have to be vetted so that they have to, producers need to know everything you're going to say, who you're going to say it about. And that's something that was not vetted. He did not. So Chris Rock said that on his own. Why Chris Rock did that, I don't know. So, you know, it, it, one thing is for certain, if he had vetted it, if he had put down those jokes that I'm going to say this about Jada, uh, they, they could have said, look, we don't think this is good. Uh, if you're going to say that about um, Jada Pinkett Smith with Will Smith sitting right there, maybe you need to go that over that with them and let them know. I'm probably going to say something about her hair. It's not going to be that bad. Just going to compare it to G.I. Jane. You know, what are your thoughts? Maybe beforehand, Will, Will Smith could have said, look, I'm going to have a problem with that. You know, so that's the first mistake there that Chris Rock did made. Uh, it is comedy. I, not knowing that Jada, if, if I didn't know Jada Pinkett had alopecia, which is a disease that, uh, you know, where, where there's hair loss uh, that women go through, I just couldn't see it as him getting up and going after him like that. I could see him standing up for his wife. People want to talk bad about Will Smith. He, you know, sometimes you have to stand up for your wife. I understand that. Uh, he could have said he could have waited for him to come off stage. He could have told he could have saw him after, you know, there are a lot of he definitely could have. Will Smith could have handled it and should have handled it a lot better than he did. But I do not begrudge Will Smith on wanting to stand up for his wife if you felt she was offended. Um, and, you know, who knows? They could have come up with a way. Hey, I just want to apologize to uh Jada Pinkett, you know, this is if Chris Rock knew, hey, uh, I was not aware she had alopecia and there's an issue, you know, because you got to mind you now, she looked fine. She just didn't have any hair on. It looked like it was 
some type of style she's going with. You know, Jada Pig is very attractive. So, um, at that standpoint, Wills could have and should have handled it better. But standing up for your wife is actually admirable. And so, but this is still all black zombie nation. This is some black zombie nation stuff. Black people uh, not understanding the big picture and the natural discontinuity antagonism that exists in the black race. Let's move on. So Will stood up to stand up for his wife. Um, Chris Rock actually was a better person by taking the slap and, and, and not doing anything. And, you know, them being up there fighting, you know, just would have been even more embarrassing. So, but I think Chris, even if he said what he said, him not betting it and putting it and letting it, letting them know he's going to say that is uh, a strike against him. Will's got a strike against him for he, for handling it the way he did. Then Will sits down and starts yelling, "Keep my wife out of your," you know, talking like, "Yeah, tell him, yeah, keep my wife's name out your mouth," type of thing. Keep my wife's name out your mouth, and it just was an uh, an emotional uh, breakdown for Will Smith. And a situation, oddly enough, that I've been in. So this is where Black Zombie Nation comes into play. Everybody's wrong here, basically. Will's wrong. Chris is wrong. And apparently, I think, as they talk about it, Jada's wrong. So on the surface, it looks like Chris Rock comes out on stage and just sees Jada Pinkett and starts picking on her. Jada Pinkett's husband sitting right there. Pretty simple. Case closed. I'm going to stand up for my wife. That makes sense. Okay, apparently there was a little back and forthness going on between Jada Pinkett and Chris Rock before this ever happened. Anyway, they had went out on a date; it didn't go well, and somehow there were still bad feelings. And Jada had said something about Chris before. Now, one aspect of culture. And that's why this is a perfect black zombie nation moment. One nation, one aspect of culture is the natural antagonism that black males have for each other, the natural antagonism that black females have for black males. All of those things have been given to them by the plantations. So you have black males being hostile and aggressive naturally with other black males. You have black females. Um, basically, if you want to get a black woman to to not do something, have a black man tell her to do it. She just has this natural, um, you know, quick to cuss them out. Quick now. In fairness to the black females, they're well built, and they they tend to be get harassed and bothered by lots of black men that they're not trying to interested in, you know, they're kind of not interested. So you have that aspect, but you have this natural antagonism that the black female has for the black male. She's quick to talk junk to him. They're quick to talk junk to us. It does not take much for a black female to cuss out, talk back or talk disrespectfully to a black male. And you see this path. I've experienced it and I've seen it. And so, um, and that, and that part of this conflict, I put that in there as, you know, black domination, the, 
so on the surface, it just looks like Chris Rock came out and is disrespecting the man's wife. But now we know there was stuff going on between Chris Rock and Jada before this. Was that resolved? Why was she talking about Chris directly like that? You know, did they, you know, why is it okay for her to do that? And so if, so what you're, you know, so the question is, can Jada just come out and say whatever she wants about Chris Rock? And now Chris Rock is in a situation where he better not say anything about Jada because he's, because she's someone else's wife. Again, back to situalized culture, culture has, what does culture do? It gives you a way a standard way of settling disputes. Culture does that. Now, let's get into the real culprit here. Let's get Will Smith, his reaction, and how emotional it got for him um, during and after his slapping of Chris Rock and, and trying to keep a, 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 a strong face, you know, like I did what I did, whatever. You know, Who is Will Smith? Will Smith is Theo Huxtable. Who is Will Smith traditionally in the black community? He is someone traditionally considered soft and nerdy. He's someone traditionally looked down upon. The, you have a little, you, again, you have a natural factionalism in the black race. One of those factionalism, actually I was going to get into it, of educated and uneducated black people. Light-skinned, dark-skinned black people. Black people from the north, black people from the south. And the Theo Huxtable of population, to which I'm one of them, black males that are the product of educated parents that have good jobs. Those men are looked down upon in the black community. They're looked at as people who aren't really black. They're called soft, corny. That's a word you do not want to be called. (laughs) I'm from that era, uh, from the 80s and 90s. You know, I'm from Long Island, New York, and, you know, the birth of hip-hop and the sneakers, the Adidas, there's some nice documentaries on that, and the, and the gear and the clothes that you would wear, the hats, the, the Kangos and, and leather bombers and all these things that were so in, in indicative of those areas, those hip-hop areas. The Theo Huxtables, to which I'm one of that population, love that stuff too, but somehow our middle-classness was always found out or checked out by the greater black society. And we, you know, they were ostracized by, um, by your own. Will Smith is definitely someone that has gone through that. And I remember his lyrics saying, people say Will, soft, Will Smith is soft. Yeah, I am soft. I'm Microsoft. And he was saying, I may not be a thug, but I'm making as much money as the guy at Microsoft. So what's up? But he's acknowledging that to his generation of young black people, you're a lesser guy because you're not a street guy. You're a lesser guy because you're not a Tupac. Interesting enough, Tupac was really more revolutionary than he was a street guy. Uh, people who love their people go wherever their people are. So Tupac was didn't come from wealth, but he was more Malcolm X-ish, educated black, than he was just a simple thug. And so people don't realize that about Tupac. They don't see that. So, um, but anyway, 
polar opposite of that as far as his generation. And that's, um, you know, he basically, the, the people, as we look at culture and the ethnic groups that coveted getting good grades and the ethnic groups that covered what getting good grades does for you, that's typically your Jews. Uh, and, and literally, they come from the same poor areas as Italians and Irish, because, and they, they come out of those same areas getting jobs as lawyers and doctors and dentists because they covet and value getting a great education more than those other ethnic groups. So within the African diaspora, within the so-called African community, African-American community, people who get good grades and read are, in many instances, looked down upon. It takes a lot of discipline to overcome that, and but you get a lot of ridicule and a lot of, I guess, alienation. To me, Will always was the guy that would get girls, so um, that uh, is not so. You know, to me, he was above all that. But that was to, to say that is not to deal with the reality of what happened and why it happened. So. Chris uh, Will Smith walking up on that stage was as much a part of from him being a nerdy, Theo Huxtable suburb black guy, meaning a man with two a uh, 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 two parent household. His parents may or may not have been educated, but he's a corny, considered a corny guy. He's considered a guy that's born from black wealth and in, in you know normal. Uh, a normal nuclear family that's looked down upon and uh, in many instances will smith was always kind of looked down upon by the by the people in his in his uh by young people in his age group he's a soft guy now the other people were proud of him jesse jackson older black people he was a good guy doing his thing coming up well but you really want to have the respect of your peers and to be honest, Will was one of those people who was not being a Theo Huxtable guy. That's not, that's literally looked down upon in the black race, uh, particularly when you're talking about his, um, his peers and young people. And to, to that point, literally, I've noticed that the Theo Huxtables and the Will Smiths try to emulate thug mentality and how they interact with other black males. That's a part of that. See, all of that's coming into that slap. It's more than just that slap. That is black zombie nation. That is a value system that um, doesn't place value on education, doesn't place value on self-education, doesn't place value on, on wealth creation, and particularly in the African-American males, to the point where those that pursue those things are considered less than. And now we, we literally have the Will Smiths, Clarence Jones guys, the Theo Huxville guys trying to do the same things that street dudes do in today's society, how they conduct themselves and carry themselves, carrying guns and all kinds of stuff. Okay. All that, all that comes from the value system that culture is supposed to give you and the lack of a centralized culture making us a black zombie nation. And so Will Smith is like a manifestation of that. And the frustration 
that I think all of us are, are dealing with, with that. So you have the disrespect of a black woman to a black man, what Jada was saying or whatever she was saying, running her mouth about Chris Rock about. Um, then you have Chris Rock going at Jada uh, without thinking. Let me talk about it. Let me you know, let them know I'm going here. Um, then, of course, you have Will Smith's action. He could have handled it better. And there was things going on there that was more than just him saying that about his wife. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying when you put all those things together, that is black zombie nation. That's a race that they does not have ability to work out its own differences. It doesn't have a natural symmetry between groups. It doesn't have a natural symmetry between genders. Um, it, 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 that's the essence of the need of a centralized culture and the black population. And of course, and in another one, we talked about, um, and I, maybe I'll get into, um, Sierra and, 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 uh, uh, Russell Wilson on our next show. So we've been talking a lot today. Uh, it's been a lot of fun for me. I appreciate your time. I'm going to sign off today. And um, thank you. This is Clarence Jones from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. I'm wishing everyone a great afternoon and have a great week. Take care.